Take your personal copy of the Word of God and open it up to Romans chapter 11. I was at the Shepherds Conference as well, and uh, that's how one of the one of the speakers began. Take out your personal copy of the Word of God and open it up. And I thought to myself, you know what? That's a great reminder. That is a really good reminder that I hold in my hand the very Word of God. What a privilege. What blood was shed to make that a reality for me. So open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. If you're using a Pew Bible, page 1135, 1135 will land you at the 11th chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Rome. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. So writes the Apostle John in his fourth gospel, penned sometime around A.D. 85. By that time, the church had become predominantly Gentile in its makeup. And as the book of Acts indicates, the persecution that the church was suffering at that point was primarily under the instigation of apostate Judaism. Fast forward a few years to A.D. 155, and we find Gentile Christian leaders like Justin Martyr writing the following when debating his Jewish opponent, Trifo. Listen to what he said, quote, The true spiritual Israel and descendants of Judah, Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham are we who have been led to God through this crucified Christ. We who have been quarried out from the bowels of Christ are the true Israelite race. How is it? How is it that a mere 60 years after the Apostle John put down his pen and the last book of the New Testament had been written that Gentile Christians could so brashly assert that God had completely set aside His people Israel and that all of those great Old Testament promises were now theirs. How could that be? What about those many statements in the Old Testament whereby God had committed Himself not to abandon His people? For example, 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 22, For the Lord will not abandon His people on account of His great name, because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for Himself. 1 Kings 6.13 I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. Psalm 94, verse 14 The Lord will not abandon His people, nor will He forsake His inheritance. 
Well, the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, verse 37, thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Did God lie to them? Did God lie to them? Is the scripture unreliable? Is God unable to keep his promise to them? Can man's sin trump God's grace? The importance of these questions directly impacts our understanding of our own relationship with Israel's God. Make no mistake, we are talking about Israel's God. The text before us this morning, beginning in verse 1, Romans 11, Paul is going to give us three reasons why we can be sure that God has not completely rejected Israel. So that we can have complete confidence in His promises to us. Last time I gave you a lengthy introduction and a short overview. This time we're going to begin to dig into the detail of this great chapter. But I do want to remind you again of the context in which this whole discussion arises. The book of Romans is Paul's most complete, most systematic presentation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything he writes here is not incidental, but critical to the explanation of that great gospel. And in a very systematic way, like a, like a lawyer building his case, precept upon precept, he, he draws this out. And he arrives at the end of chapter 8 with those great and glorious statements about nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He says, God works all things together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. He makes some incredible promises to His church. And yet the question remains, well, what about Israel? What about Israel? The Old Testament is replete with promises to those people. Great and lofty promises. Every bit as glorious as the promises made there in Romans 8. What about Israel? It sure seems like he can't hang on to them. It sure seems like somehow his promises to them haven't held up, haven't endured. So the apostle continues his case, his argument in Romans 9, 10, and 11 to help us to understand Israel. This is not an academic topic. This is not something, as I said last time, for armchair theologians, for 
amateur prophecy buffs, just to satisfy our curiosity about future events. This is all about the integrity of God. That's what's at stake. It is the integrity of God. So the Apostle Paul takes up this topic and spends three lengthy chapters answering this question. What about Israel? He has arrived here in the course of his argument at chapter 11 to speak now about their future restoration. To say that there is a day for Israel. She has not been completely cut off, completely cast away. God is not done with her. And that indeed those great and glorious promises are every bit as valid as they ever were. And they will come to pass. You can go to the bank on it. So he begins it here in the first ten verses. As I said last time, I gave you an overview. We're going back to that original skeletal outline, and we're beginning to look at it in more detail. So we are looking at, at point one of that outline, Israel's partial rejection, verses 1 through 10. And in this section of Israel's partial rejection, Paul gives us three reasons why we can be sure that God has not completely rejected Israel. So let's look at the first reason. In verse 1, Paul gives it to us. God saved Paul. It's as simple as that. God saved Paul. Let me just read the whole section and we'll go after it. Beginning in verse 1, I say then, God has not rejected His people, has He? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Or do you not know what the Scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets and they've torn down your altars and I alone am left and they are seeking my life. What was the, the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What then? That which Israel is seeking for it has not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. Back to verse 1. Paul begins here in verse 1. He says, I say then, God has not rejected His people. Has He? This question introduced by the statement, I say, flows out of the prior discussion in chapter 10. Twice there, verses 18 and 19, he he introduces the question in the same way. He, verse 18, but I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Verse 19, but I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? There's a connection to the flow of thought here. A connection to the flow. Paul has confirmed in the answering of those questions back in chapter 10 that, that Israel did hear and did understand the gospel and yet still rejected it. 
And he says in verse 21 that the reason for their rejection is their own disobedient and argumentative nature. Therefore, they are without excuse and they stand condemned. So the natural implication for Gentile Christians when they reflect upon Israel's unbelief is that God has now excluded them from his plan of salvation. And so Paul says, I say then... The then referencing back to these prior questions. I say then, well, based on what, Paul, you've just told me, it's obvious that God has cast them away. They're excluded. They are cut off. They've been rejected. But Paul vehemently denies this implication. Look again at verse 1. In the strongest possible Greek, he denies this implication. He says, may it never be. No, 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 no. You may think it's logical. It may appear to make sense to you. It may seem like the right implication of what I've said, but absolutely not. Put the thought out of your head. And he supports this emphatic denial The possibility that God has fully cast off his own people, Israel, by recounting his own Jewish credentials. Look again at the verse. He says, may it never be for I, too, am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. You know, I think sometimes we as moderns reading the New Testament, particularly as Gentiles, most of us reading this New Testament, we forget that these are Jewish men for the most part. These were Jewish men who were writing about Jesus, Messiah. These were monotheists. These were the ones steeped in the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is your God. The Lord is one. And yet these are the same ones who say, my Lord and my God in the presence of Christ. These were not Gentiles that were writing. These were Jewish men steeped in the Old Testament. But Paul reminds his readers here, God has not rejected Israel. I am living proof. I am the perfect illustration of my contention that no, God is not done with Israel. For I too am an Israelite. I mean, think with me on this. If God had been done with Israel then Paul's own history with the gospel as formerly a violent and relentless unbeliever and now its most faithful preacher is unexplainable. If God is done with Israel, what in the world is Paul, the hater of God, the opposer of Christ, the enemy of the gospel, now doing as its greatest preacher? He is living proof that God is not done with Israel. If God has saved the greatest Christ-rejecting Jew to ever live, Paul would say to you, then obviously he is not done with his people. Listen how he recounts it. 1 Timothy 1, beginning in verse 13. Paul says, I was formerly a blasphemer, 
and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. And yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. And yet for this reason I found mercy in order that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might demonstrate His perfect patience and as an example for those who would believe in Him for eternal life. Paul says, I am the living proof. The living proof. God reject His people? May it never be. May it never be. He didn't reject me. And I am a blasphemer and a persecutor. Secondly, second reason that we can be sure that God is not done with Israel begins in verse 2. And that is that God deals in remnants. God deals in remnants. Remnants. A small portion drawn out of the whole. Paul goes on to say here, emphatically, God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. He has not. He has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Now, lexically, this word foreknew or foreknowledge, it it means to know in advance, to know in advance. But its Old Testament implications is that it is a knowledge of personal intimacy. It is not just an academic knowledge. It is not just a looking down the corridors of time kind of idea. It is an idea of intimacy. It is an idea of relationship. Paul says, God has not rejected His people with whom He has an intimate relationship. Amos chapter 3, verse 2, the prophet says, You only have I chosen from all the families of the earth. You only, Israel, have I chosen from all the families of the earth. Among the nations of the world, there has only been one people One nation drawn out. One nation chosen by God to be His own and with whom He has entered into a covenant relationship. Listen to His words in Deuteronomy 7, beginning in verse 7. Moses writes, The Lord did not set His love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he had sworn to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Twice Moses says that it is because God loved you. God set his love upon you. God foreknew you in that biblical sense. They are his people. They will forever be his people. And their advantage, the Apostle Paul says back in chapter 3 of the book of Romans, is great in every way. Great in every way. They are the people foreknown by God. 
Now you will remember when we were back in chapter 8 that Paul wrote about what I call the golden chain of redemption, verses 29 and 30. And there in that golden chain, he links the foreknowledge of God in an uninterrupted fashion with the final glorification of the believer. You remember that? And when we examine that chapter together, what we learned is that the reference there to foreknowledge is, is basically a reference to God's electing love. It is God's electing love that ensures his people all the way to the end. Well, here in Romans 11, that same foreknowledge that Paul says that cannot fail for, for individuals cannot fail for Israel either. See, that's why I told you that it's so important that this question be addressed. If God foreknows Israel and yet cannot hang on to them, how can it be in chapter 8 when he says he foreknows you and your glorification is thus assured that he can hold on to you? These are intertwined arguments. There's a difference, though, in the foreknowledge here that that. Foreknowledge of an individual back in chapter 8 relates specifically to one person. Here it relates to the nation. Verse 2 again of Romans 11. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. That is that he, he loves them in an electing love. And he, and he loves them as a group, as a people, as a nation. God may set aside individuals from within that group. God may even set aside virtually the whole group. But as long as he continues to save some from within that group, then the election of the group as an entity remains sure. You understand that? God's electing love of his people, as long as some, Paul is arguing here, as long as some from within that group continue to come and follow the Lord Jesus Christ and his election of that group as a whole remains sure. The group is not cast away. It is not cut off. It is not set aside. Verse 2, God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Or do you not know what the Scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Paul is going to illustrate the truth. The truth about this great election of God, this electing love of God upon His People Israel. And he's going to illustrate it here from 1 Kings 19 in the story of Elijah. The story of Elijah, a story that is well known to you. The prophet Elijah, mighty and bold man of God, entering into confrontation with the prophets of Baal and defeating them. You remember that, how he... He called Ahab and had him bring the prophets there. And, and in that great confrontation, he, he goaded them into a public test. Build your altar, he said, and, and sacri- put your wood on it and sacrifice and pray that your God, Baal, will send down lightning, uh, fire, and consume the sacrifice. So they built their altar and they slaughtered the animal and put it on it, and they danced around it, and they danced around it, and they danced around it. And Elijah said, maybe your God's sleeping. Doesn't seem to be hearing you. Maybe he's out using the toilet because he's not responding to you. 
And on and on they went. And, and then the prophets of Baal began to gash themselves and whip themselves up into a frenzy, and yet nothing happens. Finally, Elijah says, enough. He places his sacrifice upon the altar. He digs a trench around the bottom. He says, give me some water here. Let's hose this thing down. He soaks the sacrifice. He soaks the wood. He pours so much water that the trench, the moat, is filled with water all the way around it. And then he prays out to God. And God sends down fire from heaven. And it it consumes the sacrifice. It consumes the altar. And it evaporates the water all like that. And then Elijah turns to the people. And he says, serve your God. Destroy these false prophets. And they're slaughtered. And Ahab goes running. Oh, what a victory. Till he runs into Jezebel. The wicked queen. Ahab comes home. His face is fallen. He's been defeated. He's been publicly humiliated. His prophets have been slaughtered. By this one pesky prophet. This troubler of Israel. Jezebel says, I'll take care of that guy. She says to him, you think, you think you're tough. I will make your life miserable. I will kill you, Elijah. And all of a sudden, this great and mighty hero of God, when threatened with his life, he loses his nerve and he starts to run. And the scripture tells us that he doesn't stop running until he has run 300 miles south. 300 miles all the way back to Mount Horeb. Where there he stays in a cave and complains to God that he is the only faithful man left in Israel. Lord, they've killed your prophets, verse 3. They have torn down your altars. I alone am left and they are seeking my life. Oh, woe is me, O God. The nation is faithless and apostate. What is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. What God says to Elijah is, Elijah, my plans are not what they appear on the surface to be. You can't go by what it looks like, Elijah, with your own eyes. It may look like you're the only one left, but the reality of the matter is that there is a remnant of believers even among faithless Israel. I myself have set them aside. From the human perspective, Elijah, all may look lost, but from the divine perspective, everything is working according to plan. Now, this statement about 7,000 men, that may be an actual number. It may be a statement of, of a figurative number that is indicating a fullness or a completion. In Jewish thought, the number seven is the number of perfection, the number of completion. So it's, it's possible the statement when he says here, I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. He may be just saying that I've kept for myself the full remnant of Israel, the full number, all that I have chosen. It may be 7,000, it, it may be not. But the point of the matter doesn't change in either way. It is God who is working in a way that is not obvious to the human eye. The point of the illustration, 
The point of the illustration is simple. If God has not cast off Israel in Elijah's day, but has preserved a remnant, then surely the presence of Jewish Christians indicates that God has not cast off Israel in Paul's day. You remember Pentecost, right? One sermon, 3,000 converts. You know, in Acts chapter 4, verse 4, it says there are, there are 5,000 men now in the church plus women. Certainly, there is a remnant among the people. There are Jews who have believed they have embraced Messiah. The same way God preserved a remnant. In Elijah's day, he has preserved a remnant, Paul, in yours. Verse 5, in the same way then, you see it? He's applying the illustration. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a, a remnant according to God's gracious choice. While the nation looks broken, it looks faithless, Paul says it is not entirely cut off. God is not through with it. God is continuing to bring forth a remnant by his elective grace. As it was in Elijah's time, so it is in Paul's. This remnant doesn't exist because of works they have done, but because they have been selected by God on the basis of his own unmerited favor. There's also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's, look again at it, verse 5, God's gracious choice. These are those who have not bowed the knee to the bale of unbelief. God has rescued them from a faithless nation hardened in its rejection of Jesus of Nazareth. And beloved, even to this day, Jewish Christians represent the ongoing hope of the nation. There are some of you here this morning in the hearing of my voice who have come to know Yahshua as your Messiah. You are a remnant. You are the ongoing proof of the faithfulness of God that He has not rejected His people Israel. But if it is by grace, verse 6, It is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Grace and works are mutually exclusive, Paul says. There's no room here in God's plan for personal merit. It's grace from first to last. Absolutely nothing less, certainly nothing more. You know, folks, it's the very fact that this remnant exists and that they exist because of the grace of election, not by their own merit, that gives promise to the nation. The hope of the nation exists in this very reality that God has drawn out to himself by his grace, by his electing love, a remnant from the nation. Because what that means is that God is still working among his people. And that even their unbelief cannot thwart his plan. This is the glorious hope of the doctrine of election. The reality that God elects some unto salvation and that no one can obtain it in any other way gives us hope for those who do not yet know Jesus Christ that perhaps God has chosen them too. 
You remember how Paul begins chapter 10. Chapter 10. You know, it follows right after chapter 9. <laughs> chapter 9 is his magnificent exposition of the doctrine of election. And he comes right back in chapter 10, verse 1. He said, brethren, my heart's desire and my, what's the word? My prayer to God for them is for their salvation. We can pray to God because of his electing love. We can pray and hope that God will still draw to himself. Beloved, that's why the doctrine of election is not a hindrance to evangelism. It's not a hindrance at all. Properly understood, the doctrine of election is God is a God glorifying motivation to go out and to proclaim the gospel from one end of this world to the other, because God in his sovereign election has chosen unto himself a remnant whom he will gather. If it were up to me, my ability to persuade, if it were up to you and your eloquence, if it were up to you in your holiness, if it were up to you in your intellect, if it were up to you in any other thing to save a lost man, there would be no hope. Which of you can reach into a man's heart and rearrange it? But God alone can do such things. I say to you now, if you have those that you are deeply concerned for, family members, friends, co-workers... It is this great and glorious doctrine of the electing love of God that gives you the confidence to continue to boldly preach the gospel to them and storm the gates of heaven in prayer for them that God might extend His mercy. And if He does, they most assuredly will come to faith in Him. We pray, we preach, evangelize because we know that the elect will respond. God has not rejected his people. God has not rejected his people. Paul is living proof. God has not rejected his people. There is a remnant in every generation as living proof, a remnant chosen and gathered by the electing love of God. Finally, we know God has not rejected his people because it is God himself who has cut off the nation. It is the outworking of his plan, including their unbelief. What then, Paul says, what are we to make of this? That which Israel is seeking for, it has not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it and the rest were hardened. What was Israel searching for? Paul tells us earlier they were, they were searching to establish their own righteousness. That is, that they were seeking to, to earn God's favor by their own ability to keep the law. It says they have not obtained it. But those who were chosen did obtain righteousness. Beloved, those in context here has to refer back to this remnant that Paul has just been talking about. He is not inserting the idea of Gentiles here. He is talking about Jews. 
And he says is that there is a remnant of Israel that have obtained that which the nation was searching for, which is a right standing by before God. They were searching for it on the basis of their own good deeds, their own self-effort, their own self-righteousness. And Paul says they do not obtain it, but there are some chosen by the electing love of God who do stand justified before their God. And the rest were hardened. And it is to this group that Paul now turns. If you're looking for a righteous standing before God, based upon your own personal merit, the tragic reality is that it is a fool's errand. It is a fool's errand. And everyone who follows in the footsteps of Israel engages in that same self-deception. The Apostle Paul himself was once upon engaged in that fool's errand. Listen to what he says over in Galatians 1. He says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries. But when God, who had set Paul apart from his mother's womb and called him by his grace, was pleased to reveal himself in him, Paul was able to count all these things as rubbish in order that he might gain Christ. Philippians 3.8 Paul says, I was once engaged in a fool's errand myself. I was advancing in Judaism beyond my contemporaries. My self-righteous deeds were beginning to stack up. I looked very good on the outside and everyone could acknowledge it. And he says, the whole thing didn't amount to a pile of rubbish. But it wasn't until God opened my eyes to the truth. He set his electing love on me. Beloved, God will never, listen to me, God will never, ever, ever allow anyone to stand before him based on their own self-effort. He will share his glory with no one. It doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter how much righteousness you've accumulated. It doesn't matter how you compare to everyone you can think of. It is irrelevant. Because the standard of comparison is God himself and the standard is perfection. And if we know anything about human beings, we know that nobody is perfect. Nobody. You will fall short. You will fall short. What Israel sought and could not obtain, God provided to a chosen remnant. While the rest of Israel, it says, verse 7, were hardened. Porao in the Greek. It's a reference to a callus that forms on the ends of a broken bone when they're reunited. But Paul says that in the case of the vast majority of Israel, they have become callous. They have become hard-hearted. Is that fair? Goes that old fairness question again, right? Is that fair? Is it fair of God to do that? Let me suggest to you that if God saves some by His grace... And he leaves the rest in their hardened unbelief. There has been no injustice done. There has been no injustice done. Who can complain if salvation comes to some who do not deserve it? While the rest are passed over. 
If God decides that an undeserving remnant needs to be saved, and it was what he decided to do back here, why is it so hard for us to believe that God will someday extend that same elective love to his people as a whole? If he has been continually doing it, he did it with the Apostle Paul, he did it with a remnant, he's doing it with a remnant now, why is it so hard for us to believe that someday that same electing love will be extended to the people? Verse 26 says, And thus all Israel will be, you fill in the word, saved. And thus all Israel will be saved. Quoting from their own scriptures, verse 8 and following. Quoting from both the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. So in effect, the whole entire Old Testament, Paul calls it to bear here, confirming the national hardening of Israel. And at the same time, describing her her dismal spiritual conditions even to this day. Verse 8, God gave them a spirit of stupor, that is a spirit of numbness. They have the scriptures that plainly speak of Messiah, but they either do not read them or when they do read them, they don't see and understand their true meaning. Last week I had a, a Jewish Christian believer tell me that in the synagogue when they read from Isaiah... They read Isaiah chapter 52 and Isaiah chapter 54 and they just skip over Isaiah chapter 53. They don't read it at all. My own personal and admittedly limited experience with people of Jewish background is that that they have a very limited knowledge of their own scriptures. And they apparently possess little interest in finding out what's written there. There is a spirit of stupor. There is a spirit of numbness that has gone and come over them. They have eyes that see not, ears that hear not, down to this very day. Psalm 69, David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Psalm 69, a widely acknowledged messianic psalm, and and Paul adapts the words of this psalm to faithless Israel. What David prayed, what happened to his own persecutors, Paul suggests God has brought upon those Jews who have resisted the gospel of Jesus Christ, resisted their own Messiah. In effect, their own prosperity, the prosperity of Israel has become her own trap. Let their table become a snare and a trap to them. Prosperity has kept them away, it seems to indicate. By the way, a prosperity that will be removed according to the Apostle John in the book of Revelation during those seven awful years of tribulation. Like relentless hammer blows, it will come down upon the people of God, the the nation of Israel. And God will hammer away at them until their proud and arrogant and argumentative heart has been broken. To the place when they come to a national repentance where they are willing to call out in the words of Zechariah the prophet. They will look on him whom they pierced. And they will mourn as one mourns. 
for an only son. Let their eyes, verse 10, be darkened to see not. Bend their backs forever. I don't like that translation forever, verse 10. I don't believe the NASB has it right there, so I will just let you know that I think the New King James handles it better. The expression could be translated, I believe should be translated here as always or continually. It carries the idea of without interruption. It's handled that way over in Luke 24, 53, same construction, or it is translated continually. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs continually without interruption. That is, let them be separate for the time until God has chosen to open their eyes once again. The hardness of Israel is not indefinite. It is limited by the sovereign plan of God Himself. And again, as He says in verse 26, someday when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, the end of verse 25, thus all Israel will be saved. By the example of his own life, by the illustration of the story of Elijah, by the teaching of their own scriptures regarding God's sovereign election, Paul has clearly demonstrated that Israel has not been totally rejected and thus God's promises to her are true. They are true. The question is, do you believe them? Do you believe them? Do you believe God is true to His Word? Do you believe that God will bring to pass that which He has said He will bring to pass? Do you believe He has a future for the nation of Israel? That He has not done, that He has not cast aside His own people, those whom He foreknew? That someday there will be a national repentance and recovery and salvation of Israel that the great Davidic kingdom will someday be had here on earth? I hope you do. I hope you do. Because, beloved, as I said at the beginning, the great promises that Paul has made to us here earlier in this epistle depend upon the faithfulness and integrity and power of God to accomplish His Word. If He can't hold on to Israel, what makes you think He can hold on to you? He says in Romans 6, verse 7, that he who has died is freed from sin. You remember way back there when we went through that? He says you have died in Christ. That is, that sin, this bondage over you, its slavery over you has been broken. The power of sin in your life has been fractured. Do you believe that? Do you believe it? He says in chapter 10, Verse 13, that whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you believe it? It says in chapter 8, verse 28, that we know that God causes all things to work together for good. Not that all things are good, but that God causes them to work together for good. Do you believe that? Why? Why? You believe it. I hope you believe it because you have come to know that God is the God of His Word. 
And that nothing, nothing, nothing can interfere with the promises he has made. Let God be found true, although every man be found a liar. I want to invite you this morning, if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ in a saving way, that today is the day of salvation. That that Christ comes to you through the Scriptures. That He speaks to you through the Scriptures. That He says, turn and repent from your sin. Throw yourself upon the mercy of God. Call out upon Christ to save you. Confess with your mouth Him as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead. Paul says, you shall be saved. I call upon you this morning to turn from your self-righteousness, to turn from your foolish attempts at making yourself right before God on the basis of your own works. Listen again to what he says, that it is by grace, it is not on the basis of works. Come to him be saved we're going to sing here now in a moment and then as we finish I'll be down front here I would love to talk to you anyone there's something on your mind your heart something we've been talking about this morning that is that has pricked you in such a way that you want to talk about a question that remains unanswered perhaps the state of your own soul and you come and Let us open the word and reason together. For thus says the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your fidelity to your own word. Our Father, if your word were not true, we would be without hope in this world. No place to turn. Stuck in our own sin. in bondage to lust, anger, hatred. Or even the the best and most noble desires of our heart remain unfulfilled and, and often there are no noble desires at all. What a helpless, hopeless, futile existence this would be. But your word is true, our Father. Your diagnosis of our condition is right on. Your solution through the gift of your own son to die in our place. To bear the guilt of our sin. To to drink the wrath, the cup of the wrath of almighty God all the way to the end. Grants us the deliverance we crave. Thank you for opening our eyes to this truth. We confess that it is because of no good thing in us that there's nothing within us, our Father, to commend us to you. It is purely and only your grace. And thus we are a worshiping people falling down before your throne and saying, Great and glorious is the Lord our God, our Savior, our King. We love you because you first loved us. Amen.